If you would, open your Bibles with me to Psalm 22. It's the psalm we sang earlier. As a pastor, one of the things that I count it as a privilege to do, not all pastors I hear do, but I do, is to do a hospital visit. I see it as a privilege because if somebody lets you into their hospital room voluntarily, uh, it means they're really inviting you into their lives in in an intimate and personal way. I mean, when we gather here this morning, we all look respectable, and you do. You look like a very respectable, put-together crowd. You you have time to present yourself in such a way as how you want other people to see you. But lying in the hospital, it's a different story entirely, right? We aren't so well-dressed or even dressed at all. We can't present ourselves to others as we want to. And as a result, the picture of us that others see is one that is more raw and real. I've even been in the hospital with people as they are dying, taking their final breaths. And what they say in those final moments about their life, about their Lord, about their family, their friends, it's not scripted. It's not filtered. What they say is deeply personal and real. And if you have the privilege of being with somebody in those moments, you'll no doubt know them much better. Now, I share that antidote with you because the passage we're going to look at this morning, Psalm 22, reveals Jesus, of all people, in those final moments, in that situation where what he says is not scripted, it's not filtered, it's raw, it's real. And the beautiful thing, though, is that in revealing it to us, Jesus is inviting us to know him better. He's inviting us to see him in a most intimate and personal way. If you'll remember the passage that Will read from earlier, Jesus cries on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now that phrase is actually the first line of Psalm 22 that we're going to look at this morning. And you have to know that back then... They didn't call it Psalm 22. No, there there weren't numbers back then. They called it, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the name of the psalm. That's how they thought of it. So when Jesus, in his final moments in life, is quoting that phrase there, what he's doing is he's really referring to the entire psalm. He's saying in that moment on the cross uh, that that psalm, summarizes what he's all about. That psalm gives us a picture, an insight into his life, into his ministry, into his heart. So therefore, I want to suggest to you that if you want to know Jesus personally, intimately for who he really is, this psalm is a really good window, a really good key to that. And as an added incentive for knowing Jesus, uh, let me just remind you that the New Testament defines the essence of the Christian life as knowing Jesus. Paul says that he wants to know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And over and over again, the the writers of the New Testament pray that we would know Jesus. So friends, do you know him? And let me just make a distinction here, and that is that, that obeying a certain set of rules and holding to a certain set of principles is not knowing Jesus. It's not what the Christian life is about. The Christian life is about knowing him as a person, knowing his work, knowing his ministry, and knowing who he is for us. 
So let's look at this psalm together and know our Lord. Now, because of the way the psalm is structured, I'm going to do things a little bit differently than I usually do. Instead of just reading the psalm all the way through, I'm going to give you sort of a running commentary as we go along. So, if you have your Bibles open to Psalm 22, notice first the title that is even before verse 1. You'll see there's a title there. It says, To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. Now, that indicates right there that this psalm is uh, by David, who's the king. And it's to the choir master, which means that it's, it's given to this guy who's the choir master, so he can set it to music and the people can sing it. Probably, Doe of the Dawn there is a musical tune uh, to which it was sung to. Like we sang that Psalm 22 to the doxology, they sang it to the Doe of the Dawn. I have no idea what that tune sounds like. Uh, we've lost it, but nevertheless, that's what it was for. The point of significance, though, for us to understand is that this psalm was meant to be sung by the assembly. The people of God would gather together and they would sing this like we did a little bit ago. And here is what they would sing. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Now friends, I think those are some of the most painful words in the entire Bible. He cries, my God, which implies a relationship that he has with God. And we're going to see evidence of that relationship as we go further. This is his God. You know, if you refer to somebody as my, my son, my daughter, or even their personal name, you know, my so-and-so, it means you have a relationship. He has a relationship with God, my God, and yet he feels forsaken by God. To be forsaken is to be passed over, to be forgotten, to be betrayed. A promise was made that someone would always be there, but it is broken, or at least it appears to be broken. And you feel all alone. Notice how he describes this God-forsakenness in in distance language. Uh, It's distance from God. Why are you so far from saving me? And then so far is implied again with reference to the words of my groaning. The picture is this. Do you ever, ever have the experience where you're trying to get somebody's attention? Maybe they're at the other end of a beach or a playground and you're, you're yelling and, and they're too far from your words and so they just keep on doing what they're doing without any, you know, any change because of, of what you're saying. Now, if your kids are doing that, that might be a different problem entirely. But, but nevertheless, sometimes the person's just out of, out of you know, earshot and they can't hear you. Well, that's what he's saying his prayer life is like. God's too far away from his words. And because God seems like he's too far away, he doesn't hear. And because God doesn't hear, he doesn't answer. And because God doesn't answer, he has no rest. Now, if we put all of those things together, we get quite an interesting picture of what salvation looks like. To be saved is not to be forsaken by God. It means for God to listen to you, for him to answer you, for him to grant you rest. And if we think about it, all of those things were exactly what God had promised for salvation for his people. God said to the people, I will be your God and you will be my people. And that's a covenant relationship. That implies there that God is then going to hear their prayer. He is going to then answer their prayer and bring them into a land where they can have rest. But none of those things have happened. 
So he prays, why have you not kept your end of the deal? And that sets us up for what comes next. He says, look there at verse 3. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. The reason why he says yet there is because God is holy, and therefore he should keep the covenant, right? The holy God is going to keep his covenant. And if God keeps his covenant, then this person would be saved. But he's not saved. So the holiness of God and him being forsaken by God, they just they feel incongruent. They feel like you're never going to get them together. He's just wrestling with this. Why is, are these two things there? This is the age-old problem of evil. If God is good, why is there suffering? And then, for even more evidence that God is good, the psalmist uh, brings up what God has done in the past. Verse 4, In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. What's the key word there? It's trusted, right? You see that at least four times. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered. They trusted and you were, they were not put to shame. In other words, this guy is saying, look, I know the stories. I've heard about the Red Sea crossing. I know how the walls of Jericho came down. I know how God defeated Goliath. All these times, the people of God trusted in God, and God saved them. He delivered them, and they were not put to shame. But, verse 6, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. The irony here is that this person attempts to trust in God just like his fathers did, but instead of rescue and deliverance, he gets mocked, mocked for trusting in God. It's sort of like if you're at work and all your coworkers did something nice for your boss and they all got raises. You did something for your nice for your boss and you got fired. It just doesn't go together. And this leads him to the frightening conclusion that maybe he's not a man at all. He's a worm. He doesn't deserve normal human treatment. He must just be a worm that people step on and abuse. But even for him, it's not always been like that. Look at verse 9. Yet you are he who took me from, my, from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me. For trouble is near, and there is none to help. He's saying there, look, every time I've needed you, you've been there for me, even when nobody else was. And that has taught me to trust in you. And now I'm here in the biggest struggle of my life, and where are you? You're gone. And then verses 12 to 18, we get this extended detail about the ordeal that he's facing. Verse 12 says, many bulls have encompassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a raving and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. And a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count on my bones. They stare and gloat over me. 
They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. One person describes this section as raw, bloody, and wild. I think he's right. I think you can identify three primary sources of suffering here. First, you have the enemies. Having enemies, even if they don't actually inflict pain upon you, is terrifying, isn't it? And we see that more and more with soldiers coming back from the battlefield. They look fine, but they're not. He describes his enemies here as bulls, strong bulls. They're raving and roaring lions. They're dogs. And they've cornered him. They've surrounded him. They've stripped him of his clothing. He's there crying out to God, crying for help. And he gets nothing. And then there's also the intense physical pain that's present in the psalm. Once the enemies catch him, they torture him. All his bones are out of joint. Think somebody on, you know, the medieval torturing rack where their, their bodies just split apart. His hands and his feet are pierced. His tongue cleaves to his jaw. And that's a, that's a symptom of severe dehydration. This is the most intense physical pain that you could imagine. And on top of all that, His emotional resources are just used up. His strength is dried up. His heart is like wax. He's poured out. And so he pleads to God one more time. Verse 19. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. He's saying, look, God, I have one life, one little life, and it's about to be snuffed out. They're closing in on me. I'm about to die. Save me. And notice what comes next. The second half of verse 21. See that there? You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. The tide has changed decisively. Salvation has come. God has heard. He has answered. God has delivered him. No more enemies surrounding him. No more piercing his hands and feet. No more his heart melting like wax. No more his bones being out of joint. And no more God being far away. No, his God has not forsaken him. He has saved him just like he saved his fathers before him and just like he has been to him all of his life. God's holy character has prevailed. And what does this person do? Well, look there at verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him. And stand in all of Him, all you offspring of Israel. For He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And He has not hidden His face from Him, but has heard when He cried. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. What a wonderful turn of events there. What looked so bleak now looks so beautiful. And the author here does some really interesting things with the language and the structure of this psalm to let us know that there really has been a 180-degree turn. But first, notice something about the structure. 
the beginning part of this psalm, up through verse 21, could be summarized as a prayer for deliverance. All these times he's crying out, save me, save me. And then verses 22 through 31 is praise for deliverance. You have saved me. You have saved me. This guy doesn't do what we so often do, and that is pray to God so desperately for help. And then when he helps us, we totally forget that we just prayed to God, you know. Sure, you'd never do that. This psalm is also about being despised. And in verse 6, he says that he was despised because he was afflicted. But then in verse 23, he says that God does not despise the afflicted. So he's realized that God has helped. And there's also a really interesting juxtaposition in verses 17 through 21. Look there at verse 17. See that there? He, he counts all his bones. And that same word that can mean either count or recount is used again in verse 22 to say that he recounts God's name to his brothers. In other words, what's going on there is the psalmist goes from basically counting the miseries that are committed against him to recounting the glory of God to his brothers. And as I saw that, I thought to myself, you know, we're often really good at counting our miseries, aren't we? I mean, we got them cataloged in our head, and we can spit them out if you ask what's wrong, right? How good are we at recounting the glory of God to others and and the salvation that he has provided? The psalmist sees the deliverance that God has clearly granted him. And so instead of counting his miseries, he turns and recounts the praise of God to others. But the biggest connection between these two sections of the psalm, the, the first bleak part and the second beautiful part, is the role that all people play. In the beginning, he accuses God, the psalmist accuses God, of causing all people to despise him. So in my mind, I imagine there's the, there's the person speaking, and really everybody in the world is just against him, and they're despising him, and, and all the focus is on him, and they're, they're shouting down their terrors and their hate. But then, after God saves them, it switches. And, and they're not looking at him anymore, but they're now looking at God. All the people look to God and praise him. And that person who had been the subject of the hate and scorn is now the instigator for all praising God. Now the tide has not only switched in this one person's life, it's it's a game changer for the whole world. And we find more about that in verse 29 through the end. He says, All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. Before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. In other words, there's like these these circles that get larger and larger of the, the realm in which God's praise will be known. It begins with the psalmist's own life, and then it extends to the, the people of Israel, and then it extends even more to the um, to all the nations, and now here it extends even more to all the generations because of this person's salvation. So this psalm takes us on a journey from the depths of despair to the heights of glory. But what does it really mean? And if this psalm is going to encourage us, and even more help us to know Jesus better, We've got to explore what it means. And, and that's not, initially speaking at least, an easy task because this psalm leaves many things unanswered. It presents us with a number of difficulties in interpretation right off the bat. 
However, my thesis here is that if we poke on those difficulties a little bit, or maybe pull on those difficulties, you could say, it'll be like pulling one of those strings that just keeps going and out comes the whole thing. Now, we'll understand what this psalm is doing if we ask some of these probing questions that at first seem mysterious to us. So first, who in the world is this psalm really about? And that question needs to be asked to begin with. The title attributes it to David, but there's a problem if we just take it on face value. Nowhere in David's life do we read anything like this experience at all. I mean, David was the king. This psalm seems to talk about a person being executed. We know that because of the the reference to the dividing their clothes by lot. That's what they would do when someone's being executed. But that never happened to David. Okay, so maybe if it's not about David, could it be about a historical figure in the past? Maybe David is remembering somebody. But no one... Try, try searching your Bibles. I don't think it fits anybody in the Old Testament history before David. It's interesting reading the Jewish scholars on this one because uh, they try to say it's Esther, uh, which is, it doesn't fit the timeline anyway, but it also is somewhat ridiculous how they make the details of the psalm fit Esther's life. But anyway, it's not David. It's not before David, but there is one who fits perfectly with this psalm after David. Who is that? Yes, Jesus was executed, and he went to that execution willingly. He gave himself to it. He had people all around him. They surrounded him. They encircled him. They stripped him of his clothes. They divided it by lot. His hands and his feet were pierced. It's a well-known fact that victims of crucifixion would have experienced just incredible thirst. And Jesus cried on the cross, I thirst. Jesus is even mocked with the very saying, he trusts in God, let God deliver him. All of it fits perfectly with Jesus' experience. But even more significantly, the New Testament authors see this experience of Jesus not only fitting the details of this psalm, but fulfilling the point of this psalm. They see it as a fulfillment of what Jesus came to do. Matthew 27 and John 19 both say that Jesus' clothes were divided by lot so that this scripture would be fulfilled. That pattern of you know, prophecy fulfillment fits the fact that this psalm was written about Jesus. And that leads us to the conclusion that David is speaking here as a prophet. He's, he's not referring to his own situation or the situation of another. He is referring to Jesus here. The Holy Spirit has given him insight into the nature of who Jesus is. Now, friends, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I wonder, how do you account for the fact that this was written about Jesus centuries before he was ever born? How do you explain even the fact that this psalm so clearly speaks of crucifixion and crucifixion hadn't even been invented yet? Now, that didn't come along until Alexander the Great, 500 years after David. I read this passage to an atheist friend of mine once, and it troubled him greatly. It shook his faith. There's only one way to account for what's in here that I know of, and that is the fact that God knows the future. According to the Bible, he knows the future because he planned the future. History is nothing but the unfolding of God's story. And friends, because he is that kind of God, he deserves to be treated with the sense of reverence, respect, and honor that we give to no one else. 
In the book of Isaiah, God says this. He says, I am God, there is none like me. Now listen to how God establishes His uniqueness here. There is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. Friends, do you have a reverence and honor for God because of His unique role in planning and controlling all of history? Friends, the real test as to whether or not you do is how much weight you give to those things that God says will happen, but haven't happened yet. And the Bible says in Colossians 3 that when Christ returns, believers will be revealed in glory. We will be glorified with Him. That's a wonderful day. And the Bible also says that when Jesus returns, He will come with a sword, and all those who oppose Him will be opposed. Friends, how much weight do you give to that future event? How much time do you spend thinking about that future day? Martin Luther is reported to have said that there are two days on his mind at all times. Today and that day. And everything he does today is in light of that day. How much does that day inform your thinking, feeling, hoping, desiring about today? Another question to determine the seriousness with which we take God's role as the planner of history is how much do you care about being reconciled to Him so that when He returns, it will be a time of exceeding joy instead of unspeakable horror. And that leads us to the next question we see in this psalm. Why did Jesus experience this? Okay, this is about Jesus. We've got that. Why? Why was he forsaken by God? I mean, think about it. Jesus is powerful, right? Why did he willingly undergo this extreme torture? Voluntarily undergo this extreme torture? Well, the psalm doesn't come right out and say it. But we get a lot of insight if we consider the nature of Jesus' suffering here. According to this psalm, the most horrific aspect of his suffering was not the physical enemies. It wasn't even the pain inflicted in his body. Rather, it's that God forsook him. Jesus is quoting, what Jesus is saying by quoting this psalm is that the worst part of his suffering was not the enemies or the physical pain either. It was actually something that could never be portrayed in any movie. It was the fact that God had forsaken him. God had abandoned him. See, what Jesus experienced then and there on the cross was something different than he had ever experienced in his 33 years of ministry. And that is the complete absence of the loving God in his life. You see, what marked Jesus' life throughout his time on earth was a rich and powerful relationship with his heavenly Father. At the beginning of the Gospels, we read that the heavens opened and the Spirit came down and there was a voice that said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus calls God my Father in a special way with a degree of intimacy that no one else can lay claim to. And then, in his most extreme trial, he experiences the absence of God's loving presence. He experiences the abandonment of God. Jesus is forsaken by his Father. He cries, but he gets no answer. He is not helped. He is not delivered. Instead of the heavens opening and a voice, darkness. Why? He was forsaken 
that God's people would never have to be. He bore the penalty that they deserved. You see, according to the Bible, we all deserve to be forsaken by God because of all the ways that we have not honored Him as our God. God created us in His image, which means that we are fit for a relationship with Him. We are made to love Him and rejoice in Him and honor Him and obey Him, but we've not done that. We've done what we want rather than what God wants. And you see, God is holy and just, and therefore it is right and fitting for Him to punish all that is assaulting His glory. And what is that punishment? Well, it is simply this. God gives us over to the very thing that we desire, namely, a world without Him. You see, all that has to happen for us to be in a place of darkness and terror is for God to withdraw His gracious presence from us. That's it. You see, the reason why this world can often be a very pleasant place to live is the fact that God is here. He is extending His kindness to all people. The Bible says that He's doing that in order to encourage us to repent, and and we call that common grace. But if God withdrew His presence, what we would experience would be a reality so horrific that there there aren't even words to describe it. The Bible talks of hell sometimes as darkness and sometimes as fire. And you say, but those don't fit. Well, that's right, they don't. But they are metaphors for one reality that is at once incredibly painful and bleaker than our darkest nights. Friends, the reality is that we have no idea what it would be like to live in the complete absence of God's favor. The irony, though, is that the one who ought never to know what it is like knows it very well because he experienced that for us. He took the darkness and the fire into his own heart so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus was forsaken by God so that we who trust in him would never have to be. He was encircled by enemies that we might receive fellowship with the Trinity. He was pierced that we might have bodies that will never die. He was given over to darkness that we might live in eternal light. He thirsted so that we could drink. And he calls us to then be reconciled to him by believing that he did that for us, that his death on the cross was in our place, that we deserve what he experienced and worse, but he took it in our place for us. Friends, if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, I encourage you, I plead with you, trust in Jesus. You will not find a better Savior. No one is willing or able to do what he has done. Now, partly tempted to end here because this is just a great truth to leave you with, but I can't quite yet. Almost done. I can't risk leaving you with a huge misunderstanding. You see, if you're going to trust in this Jesus, you need to know that he ain't still dead. He is alive. He was delivered over to death, but now he is alive. And why is that? Well, because God saved him. Psalm 22 attests to this. Remember the first part of the psalm is about our need for deliverance? And the last part of the psalm is about praise for that deliverance? Well, the third mystery that we encounter in this psalm is what accounts for the sudden switch? I mean, the first part seems so bleak, the second seems hopeful, and we're left reading that and thinking, why? Why? What's the difference? Well, if it's about Jesus, the answer is the resurrection. You see, the resurrection 
is also monumentally significant for how we understand what happened on the cross. You see, the essence of the cross is not God choosing to love us above His Son. I sometimes hear people trying to illustrate the Gospel by telling the story of a father who had to sacrifice his son in order to save his people. That might move a crowd to tears, but it doesn't really illustrate the Gospel very well. The reality is that God is the one who controls all of history, and He planned from the very beginning to raise Jesus up from the dead. And after Jesus completed the mission that the Father gave Him, God raised him up, lifted him above and beyond where he was before. The Father heaped all glory and honor on his Son. The New Testament talks a great deal about this. It says how Jesus is raised up in glory. He is crowned with glory and honor. He is given a name above every name. And friends, all of this is actually part of our salvation too. Because when Jesus receives that glory and honor, guess what he does with it? He gives it to us. He shares it with us. Friends, for us to be saved, yes, God needed to forsake His Son because otherwise we would have been forsaken and that would lead us to a place of never-ending pain. But God also needed to raise Jesus up from the dead because only in His salvation do we have salvation. Only in His life do we have life. We see that pattern even in this psalm. It's a curious thing in this psalm that because of one person's salvation, all the nations praise him. All the nations praise God throughout all generations. Now, that would be a very curious uh, reality if it applied only to a mere human. But this psalm is not about a mere human. It is about Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Only then does it make sense that his salvation is the salvation of the world. You see, this psalm is about God saving this person so that the whole world will bring praise to him. And and how does it work that way? Only if the world experiences salvation through him. Friends, do you appreciate this salvation? I asked you earlier if you do more counting the miseries you experience in this life or recounting God's salvation to others. I think all too often we do a lot better at counting our miseries. But in light of the salvation that we share with Christ, that ought not to be. Let's just, for a brief moment, think about that salvation right now and see what happens in our hearts. We were threatened with complete destruction, but not from enemies, from the just wrath that hangs over us. And unless Christ came to take that for us, there would be no hope. But he did come. And God used him to take that from us, and then God saves Christ, raising him from the dead, freeing him from death, and thereby giving him new life and us new life in him. What does that message do to your hearts? Friends, do you think often and deeply about your salvation? Does it flit about in your brain? Do you speak about it openly? Do you tell your friends and co-workers? Are you willing to be baptized, to publicly declare before the watching world, Jesus is my Savior, I will follow Him? Are you willing to openly identify yourself with the church and build into the life of that church to help establish the church's corporate witness for the gospel? Are you willing to stand with Jesus even when it is wildly unpopular? Are you willing to be mocked and ridiculed for His sake?
Well, in order to help us do these things, keep in mind not only what this psalm says our salvation past is, but also what our salvation future is. You see, this passage not only predicts the suffering of Jesus, but also the glories to follow. Glories that include all people praising God. All nations praising God. Generation after generation praising God. Honestly, are you just a little bit skeptical that that will really happen? Maybe. Well, you must remember who really is the sovereign Lord over all of history. Working it out exactly as he intends. As surely as Christ died and rose again according to the prediction of scriptures, so also he will receive the full honor and glory and praise that is due his name according to what is foretold right here before us. Generation after generation will talk about him. All nations will praise him. Friends, that is going to happen. And when Jesus quotes this psalm in his dying breath, he was experiencing not only the horror of his God-forsakenness, but also the expectation of the glory that would come. The author of Hebrews says that, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Friends, if we are going to know Jesus according to the the New Testament, we need to know him according to that pattern. Suffering and then glory. Suffering and then glory. In our suffering, then, we need to cling to him as a fellow sufferer with the certainty that if we suffer with him, we will be glorified with him. We need to know that he experienced that great suffering in order to free us from our sin And then he received a great reward so that in love he could share that reward with us. Do you know him? And you must realize that he is not trying to hide himself from us. In his final breaths before he died, when his body was in that extreme pain, he revealed himself. Even then he was revealing to us who he is, that we may know him. Please know him. 